The bunny ears make me wanna say happy Easter, but not yet. On the way out, somebody this morning, I said, Merry Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) I am confused. Okay, so today, um, that's from Mark chapter 11. So if you wanna go ahead and if you brought a, your phone Bible, Bible in the pews, your own Bible, whatever. Uh, we're gonna be reading Mark chapter 11 today. We're gonna read quite a bit of it. Jesus does a really weird thing, like really weird. Like he does a really weird thing. And I need you to see it in context, so we're gonna read it. But before we do, we need to pray. So will you guys pray with me? Father God, um, we pray that as always, that as your scripture is read and as the gospel is proclaimed, that it wouldn't just be information, that this wouldn't just be a teaching, even though we are teaching and learning scripture as we gather together, but that this would really be a proclamation, that it would be a word that like enters into us and doesn't just change our mind, but it changes who we are, um, like at the deepest level. That it connects us to you, that it helps us to see that, that we are, as scripture says, we are your prized possession. Um, And that must mean something in the way that we live our lives every day. So I pray that as we listen to the story, as we wrestle with Jesus doing a weird thing, um, that you would be with us, that you'd open our minds, that you'd open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts, that we could receive it. As always, that when we leave here, um, our hands and our feet would get to work. Our mouths, our entire being would be vehicles for your hope, for your grace, for your reconciliation in the midst of the world that desperately needs it. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all God's people said, amen. amen. So before uh, we start reading the story today, I wanna tell you a story. Um, I wonder if you've been paying attention. I give you guys little Bible study tips all the time. I'm not sure if you're aware of it. If I am wrestling with a passage, if something is confusing in scripture, what part of scripture do I like to go to first to help me understand it? Where do I like to go in the Bible if I'm confused and wanna understand a hard thing? Just be brave. You, you may be wrong. And that's what, who said it? What'd you say? The beginning. That's so great. And I'm so proud of you because you're here at the eight o'clock and you remembered. So good job. <laughs> I just didn't want them to feel bad, okay? <laughs> so, yeah, the creation story. That's the place to go. Genesis one through three. Anytime you're in scripture and you're like, what in the world is going on? I'm telling you, if you go back to Genesis one through three, you're gonna find the roots of it, okay? So we're gonna go back to the garden, but I wanna share it with you. Um, I wanna share with you the words of an author. This guy's a storyteller. His name is Stephen James. And I want you to hear the way he describes God's good creation and what life was like in the garden. Um, So this is paraphrased a little bit. It's from a book that's just called Story. And it says this. It says, in the beginning, uh, the man and the woman lived without tension or regret. They weren't ashamed of themselves, of their choices, or of their God. It was nothing but harmony. An original song being sung. Adam was one note, Eve another, and God a third. And they were all woven together in a melody of relationship none of us has come close to recapturing. God's first words to those humans were, you are free. Eden was untamed and the man and the woman were free to eat of most of it, to enjoy it, to work it, to tame it, free to help it flourish. The future was full of promise and infinite challenge, exploration and adventure, 
Life just hummed with harmony, just as God intended. Our first parents were in tune with nature, in touch with each other, and at peace with the creator of it all. How I wish the Bible was only two chapters long, (laughs) right? What a great place to stop. But of course, that's not how the first story ends. It ends in disobedience and rebellion and exile. The harmony of that beautiful song, it spirals out of control. It's like a cacophony, noise and chaos. And even though the humans can no longer live in that good garden, God still provides for them. He covers their shame, but then he does cast them out into the wilderness. And Genesis 3 ends with this. It says, the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden cherubim, which is, well, I can't explain what that is. Cherubim. (laughs) And a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. The flaming sword is the point, right? The only way back into the garden is through a flaming sword that you can't get past. Death is the only way back in. And nobody can survive it. I mean, the Bible's almost written with this tension now of like, okay, so who is it? Who can overcome and overpower death? Who can enter back in? The third chapter of the Bible, it comes to a conclusion and it seems like all hope is lost. The next chapter is not much better, right? A brother kills another brother. Things start going downhill pretty quick. Until, as we continue to read, we start getting these hints. We get these clues. It's like God hasn't given up. Like he's still up to something. So he takes a man uh, and he tells him that he's gonna form a family out of him. It's gonna be greater than the stars in the sky. He tells that man that he and his family are gonna be blessed, not because they're special and not because that man did anything good just because God said, I'm gonna bless you. But he says, I'm gonna bless you and your family so that you will be a blessing to all the other nations around you. He tells this man, Abraham, he says, through you and through your family, through the life that I'm gonna teach you how to live, through your obedience to that life, the nations around you are gonna come to know who I am, who God is. They're gonna come to find that there is a path to that harmony again. There is is a path back to peace in that garden again. So God takes that family and he puts them in this land and it's a land that's flowing with resources. It's flourishing with life. It's in the middle of a desert, in the middle of what is nothing but wild and waste. Like it's a place that it almost resembles the garden, like in part. And then in that land on a mountain called Mount Moriah, God establishes a temple, a house. It's a place where God's own presence rests. It's not the garden Not yet. The people's access is still limited, but God has formed a people, a place. He's made a home so that a wandering and wayward humanity could find him again. Y'all, that was the purpose of Israel. That's the purpose of the family of God. That's the purpose of the temple. To be a people in a place that are set apart, different from the rest. 
a people in a place that like compared to the rest of the world around them, like honestly, they're a little weird. <laughs> like in all seasons of life, there are people that are meant to live in a way that's gonna stand out. To live in a way that's like a contrast to all the unraveling chaos in the world around them. They are to be a light to the nations. To live as an anticipation of what life with God forever might look like. And the Hebrew language, the Old Testament's written in Hebrew, the Hebrew language has a word for this. And a lot of you know it. It's the word shalom. And that word does not mean peace. It's a wild understatement of that word. That word does not mean peace. It's the Hebrew way of saying, may everything be with you as God intended for you in the beginning. See how deeper, how much deeper that is than peace? <laughs> may everything be with you as God intended for you in the beginning. May you experience, at least in part, that garden life until you know it in full. If they will trust him, if they will live in part that garden life, they will find shalom and through them the nations will as well. But as is the pattern, this story too doesn't end with a happily ever after. God made a way back to the garden, but they instead decided to build the city for themselves. And that city, it ended up looking just like all the rest of them. A people that were set apart, meant to be different, Instead, they decided they just wanted to look and act like everybody else. So that's the city that Jesus entered into on Palm Sunday. So Beth told the story. I wanna read it from Mark 11. Again, I'll read parts of it at least because I want you to hear it and then I want you to hear what comes right after it. So this is Mark chapter 11. I'm gonna read verse one. It says, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and just as you enter it, you will find a colt there. And then Beth, of course, uh, told how that story played out. So down to verse seven, when they brought the colt to Jesus, they threw their cloaks over it and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches that they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead of those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heavens. So listen to this. So it says, Jesus entered Jerusalem, went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12th. And we're gonna see on a map in just a little bit, that's like a couple miles east. So he walks in, he looks around, and he walks back out. Now listen to what comes next. So the next day they're leaving Bethany and Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And I love how Mark says, and the disciples heard him say it. <laughs> What's going on? It's weird, right? Isn't that weird? And if you don't understand uh, Jesus, like who he is and what he tends to do, you might think that he's like being petty. 
small. He's just acting out of frustration. He's a little grumpy. Maybe he's throwing a fit because his blood sugar was low. I mean, he's human, but he's also God. So one commentator said it this way. says, uh, it's particularly scandalous to modern Christians because the reported incident appears to be an act of unjustified petulance on Jesus's part. We find it difficult to believe that the Jesus we know from the Sermon on the Mount would be so bad-tempered as to curse a tree that failed to satisfy his hunger. Not only that, but Mark's gospel makes it clear that it wasn't even the right time for figs. There shouldn't have been figs on the tree because of the season. Like right now, I don't know if you guys noticed, it's, it's pollen season? <laughs> so that's driving us crazy. Um, but it's also the season for azaleas and blue bonnets, which are beautiful, right? So uh, I wonder, this past fall, like maybe you're driving out to College Station, maybe you're driving out to Austin, you look around, you're in Brenham, you see the fields, and you're like, why aren't there any blue bonnets? Field, may you never blossom a blue bonnet again. And then you keep on driving. Do you do, you do that? <laughs> because that's crazy. <laughs> All right, so what's going on? So you can find this story in Matthew's gospel as well, but I chose to use Mark's gospel because he tells it in a really unique way. This author 2,000 years ago uses a really sophisticated literary device to help us understand what's going on. So I wanna show you too. It's called an interpolation, or in seminary, we called it a Mark sandwich. <laughs> nerds, right? <laughs> Man. So a Mark sandwich, uh, in the case of Mark, uh, this is when he interrupts a story with another story. And in Mark's gospel, he does this all the time. It's one of the most common features in his gospel. Uh, he places a new story right in the middle of a story already being told. But it's on purpose. It's an interpretive tool. It's a story that's given to us so that we can better understand the story around it. Does that make sense? So listen to this. This is the meat and the cheese in the center of the Mark sandwich. Um, it says this, this is verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of money changers and the benches of those selling doves. He would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. If you go read this in John's gospel, he tells the story really early in chapter two. It says that he made a whip. It, like, he made a whip, y'all. It was violent. He didn't just walk by and like, oh, there's a table and turn it over. Like, he's causing a scene. He's making a mess. It's destructive. It says in verse 17, and as he taught them, Mark sees what he's doing as a teaching tool. He says, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. So remember back to what I said earlier. You gotta hold all this together. God's family was created to be a people who were different, right? Right? to be set apart. They were meant to be a light to the nations. They lived a life as an anticipation of what life with God forever might look like. They were to put shalom on display. 
And when Jesus enters into Jerusalem, he sees with his own eyes what he already knew was true, that Israel was no different from the nations around it. They were wandering and lost. The people who were meant to produce fruit by the power of God's spirit in all seasons, not hot or cold, not every once in a while, but to produce fruit in all seasons, they settled. They settled to be just like everybody around them. When Jesus arrives, the city and the temple that was meant to be a place of peace and prayer, reconnecting with God, it was full of disruption and chaos, just like any other city in the world. So that's the meat in the middle of this Mark sandwich. The people who were meant to live as children, adopted by God, instead they chose to live as orphans. And Jesus, in his anger, he does an act of performance art. He destroys, in part, the very thing that is separating people from God. So let's go back to the fig tree story, because that's how Mark tells this. Listen to what happens next to the fig tree. This is verse 20. It says, in the morning as they went along, they saw a fig, the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. This is the only miracle in scripture that destructs. You know what I mean? That doesn't like heal and renew. It's the only miracle in scripture that breaks something apart. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their hearts, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Again, he is so difficult. We were just talking about fig trees, man. Why are we talking about mountains now? <laughs> okay, so let me show you. This is a map of the area um, because to understand this, you gotta put yourself in the map, Okay. Uh, we heard earlier, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He looks around and then he leaves with his disciples. Mark tells us in verse 11 that when they left, they went to Bethany, which is a couple miles out to the east. So in between Bethany and the temple in Jerusalem is this town called Bethphage. If you're reading it in your English translation, you probably would say Bethphage or Bethphage. Uh, but guess what Bethphage, that's important, Bethphage, two words. Guess what it means in Hebrew? It means house of the early figs. <laughs> so if you're standing outside the temple in the town of Bethphage, the question is, which mountain would Jesus be looking at? Which mountain would he be talking about? Now, if you've been there, it's, it's like a really hilly region. There's a lot of mountains. You can see on the map, Mount of Olives. Is he talking about throwing the Mount of Olives into the sea? I don't think so. What did the olives ever do, Right? They seem to be okay. Listen to this. This is 2 Chronicles 3. Uh, Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. Which, mount, which mountain is he saying you can throw into the sea? He's talking about the mountain that the temple of the Lord sits on. Mount Moriah, that holy site where Solomon's temple was built. Pick it up and throw it into the sea. Like, do you see what Jesus is doing? He's cursing a fig tree for not bearing fruit even though it's out of season. He's turning over tables in the temple and driving out the people who had turned a house of prayer into just like Wall Street. When, he, when he's saying that by faith that we could take the temple mount and throw it into the sea, do you see what he's doing? Like he's proclaiming judgment. 
and he's proclaiming judgment on his own people. Because they were meant to produce fruit by the power of God in all seasons. But they settled. They settled for the patterns and the ways of this world. And time's almost up. Jesus is enacting God's judgment. It's performance art. He's like the original Banksy. (laughs) This is like a living parable. It's an anticipation of the greater judgment that's coming. You refuse to be the family of God that I created you to be, God would say to them. You refuse to bear fruit. You refuse to reveal the presence and shalom that I've given you to the world around you. You take this sacred place that I've established for you and you turn it into just another marketplace? Wither away. Be thrown in the sea. Because you are no longer relevant and you are no longer the place where people will meet me. In his judgment, instead of building another house on top of another mountain and saying, well, let's just try this again with another group of people, Jesus fulfills his purpose. He fulfills the mission of Israel itself and he does it himself by going to the cross. He is the one that overcomes that flaming sword that's guarding the garden. He fulfills the purpose of Israel by bringing death to death so that we may live. And then on a solid rock, he builds his church. There's one last little detail from the story that I want to show you. It's a small thing about the tree that you may miss in verse 13. It says, seeing in the distance that the fig tree was what? In leaf. He went out to find if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it wasn't the season for figs. It's a really small thing. This tree wasn't producing any fruit, but what was it full of? It was full of leaves. So from a distance, it looked full. It looked alive. It looked like it would have been producing fruit even though it was out of season. So much so that Jesus made the journey. He thought there might be fruit on it and he went to take a look. On the outside, it looked alive. But what was happening on the inside? It's producing no fruit. It's dead. Y'all, if you would have gone to that temple mount when Jesus was there, uh, that place would have been kicking, like bustling with motion and activity. The historian Josephus, he tells us that during an average Passover week, about 250,000 people would come in and out of the temple, would walk those streets in Jerusalem. It was as active a place as there was on the planet. It looked alive, but it was full of people who were spiritually dead. And the place where spiritually dead people were supposed to go to be brought back to life, all it was doing was taking their money, giving them stuff to consume, and sending them on their way. It was producing no fruit. From a distance, it looked like a place where the work of God was happening, but it was no garden. It was really a graveyard. And y'all, there was a warning in this for the church in all times and in all seasons. You know, the church can be big, busy with activity, people coming and going. And that describes a lot of churches today, but it also describes a lot of other places. Because what's different between a church like that and a a mall or Minute Maid Park 
or NRG Stadium or the Hobby Center? Shouldn't something be different? Like our lives may be busy and busting with activity, even with good activity. But just because we're busy on the outside doesn't mean we're alive on the inside. As individuals and as a church, is there any fruit? Is it the right kind of fruit? Are we seasonal? Maybe we're hot and we're cold, right? Or are we individually and as the church, are we really producing God's good fruit, that garden fruit, and are we producing it in all seasons? Not just at Christmas and Easter. Are we just busy doing things just like the world around us does because that's just what we do? Or are we strategic? Are we focused? Are we listening to the spirit of God to discern what God is calling us to do here in this community? And are we doing that together? Like you elect elders to do a lot of this work but y'all, the elders serve you. That's fundamental to who we are as a church. That work can't be done by nine people or by three pastors. That work is done by the people, discerning. What is God calling us to do? Why did God put us right here on this spot of land? Why did God provide so that we could build this facility? What is he up to? What are we doing? Like it's so easy to get distracted, like just on, in your neighborhood, right? Look down the street and see what somebody else is doing, what they bought, what they have, what's going on. It's so easy to wanna keep up with them. Y'all, it's the same thing with churches. It's easy to get caught up in worrying about what's going on with our neighbors. What programs and activities are they doing? They're attracting people. What are they doing? Let's try that. And some of those are really good things. But that's not vision. That's not mission. That's not what we're called here to do. We have to remember who we are and why we exist. And I'll tell you from this story, from the whole scripture, from Israel's story, what I know for sure is that we are called to be different. That we have been set apart so that the world around us can see in us that there's another way to live. That there is another way to navigate the chaos of this life. And if we do that compared to the world around us, y'all, we're gonna look a little weird. We're gonna look different in the best possible way. Listen to this from 1 Peter chapter two. It says, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Like think about those four things that Peter just said about you. That you are chosen. Why are you chosen? Because you're really good people? Because you've done something special? No, you are chosen because God chose to choose you. <laughs> you are a royal priesthood. I'm a pastor that's a particular calling in a job. Sabrina is a pastor that's a particular calling in a job. You are a royal priesthood. I am not here to do all the work for you. The people do the work of the church 
and not just in the building, but everywhere we go. You are a holy nation. The word holy in Greek is the word agios. Gios is the word for earth. When you put an A in front of it, it means not. So what does the word holy mean? Not earth, right? Not, not earthy. Something else. But the last thing it says is that you are God's special possession. To the God of the universe, you are his special possession. So that, and if you could put the text back up really quick, Noah. Sorry. So that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Y'all, we are the temple of God, the body of Christ, the church built on a stone that the world has rejected. And guess what our purpose is? To be a people and a place that are set apart, that are different in all seasons, to live in a way that stands out, live lives that are in contrast to the unraveling chaos in the world around us, to be a light to the nations, to live as an anticipation of what life with God forever might be like, and to do that so that the people around us might come to experience the presence and the shalom of God through the power of the Holy Spirit and the person of Jesus Christ. Amen? Does our social media look any different than our neighbors? When we're having political conversations, is the tone different than our neighbors? What's different? <laughs> From time to time, we have to evaluate and we have to assess where we are as individuals and as a church. And to do that, we have to ask hard questions. Do we look like a holy people? Or does it look like we're no different than the world around us? Is there anything different about the way that we live and move in the world or do we look so much like the world that no one would even notice? Are we set apart? Do we have the vision for the kind of church that God is forming us into through the Holy Spirit? And when we do the things that God is calling us to do, are we giving God the glory and then is that glory being revealed to our neighbors? Or are we just coming together to go through the motions? Are we practicing religion or do we really desire a relationship with Jesus? That's the question. For the past few months, we've been introducing you to our friends at Steiger, this international mission organization. Ben Pierce came and spoke a couple months ago. They have a really great way of saying this, a great way of helping us to tell the difference between religion and relationship. If we are practicing religion, then we're gonna focus on making bad people good. But if we truly desire that people have a relationship with Jesus, then we will understand that our mission is not to make bad people good, it's to help spiritually dead people come alive. The story of scripture does not go from bad to good, y'all, it goes from good to bad. And then in Jesus, it goes from death to life. That's why we're here. That's what this upcoming week is gonna proclaim. Not a religion that makes bad people good, but a relationship that brings dead people to life. Now these are hard questions, but they are important. So we shouldn't be afraid to ask them. 
And we shouldn't be afraid to be honest about the places that we're lacking. And when we find those places, do you know what we do? We repent. We turn the other way. We reform. At the congregational meeting a couple weeks ago, I, I told the people who were here that during the pandemic, in the two years of the pandemic, from like March 13th when we kind of shut down until this past March 13th, we've had 60 new covenant partners added to this congregation. People who are engaged and active in the life of the church, two of those people who have just become covenant partners were actually nominated to be church leaders just a couple months ago. And before they become covenant partners, I always sit down and we meet and we just talk and just have a conversation. And the one question that always comes up is what does it mean that you're reformed? What does it mean that this is a reformed church? And I always tell them, So, a lot of people talk about the Reformation. It's about Calvin. It's about a certain theology. It's about predestination. That's all secondary stuff. To be reformed is very simple. It means that God is sovereign, that I am broken, and that if I, a broken person, am in charge of an institution, I'm gonna mess up. So to be reformed means to be aware that I may break it, and when I do, I repent, I confess, I turn back to Jesus so that he can repair us and put us back to work. To be reformed simply means we're aware that we might be wrong. And when we are, we acknowledge it. And we turn to Jesus to pull us out. Y'all, that's the kind of church that Jesus left this world. And he left us to be a gift. That might not be the kind of church that the world always wants. That might not be the kind of church that's gonna have 10,000 members every week, but that is exactly the kind of church that the world needs. In so many ways, I believe we are that kind of church. In the ways that we're not, I want us to be willing to repent and to reform because there are people in this neighborhood who need to know how much they are loved. By you, by the one who made them, and by the one who gave his life so they might find their way back to the garden again. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for the patterns of this week. Um, It's really up and down. There's the triumph of coming into Jerusalem and then the weirdness of cursing fig trees. There's the beauty of sitting around the table the Last Supper on Thursday night and then the drama and the tragedy of your suffering and your arrest in the garden, the sham trial, the crucifixion, the death, the burial. This is such an up and down week. It can feel so complicated and confusing. But we know that all of that leads to this time next week where all the confusion is gone, where the up and down, the roller coaster's over because we remember that death has been defeated. That you have paid a price that we can't so that we can come to life and that we can begin to experience that even now. So God, I pray that this week, that the stories, that the meanings that we have together, that they would remind us of that deep truth and that we would live that truth each and every day. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Mm -hmm.